Welcome to All About Art. My name is Alexandra, and I'm an art historian, curator, and writer. Within this podcast, topics relating to art history, cultural policy, the art sector, as well as a large range of other art-related topics will be covered. Conducting critical discussions, having entertaining exchanges, or just enjoying some relaxing chats? All About Art is where you'll find it all. Join me in exploring and developing cultural discourse. Welcome to another episode of All About Art. This episode is a bit of a different one because All About Art is a podcast all about demystifying the professional art sector, where I speak to amazing people in different roles in the arts. But I also love to do episodes that touch on various themes within the industry and experiences within the sector. So this time, it's a bit more unconventional. I recently went to visit Beau Gabriel, a London-based artist, in his studio to sit for a painting. This was my first time sitting for a painting, and it was really fun to experience this, while also taking my mics with me to record it for you guys listening in. I also asked the lovely community I have on Instagram if they have any questions to direct to an artist in the studio, so this episode is also guided by you. I am warning you now if you get bothered by background noise, I suggest you skip forward a tad because in the first 10 minutes, you can hear Bo prime his canvas and his paintbrushes while he instructs me on how to pose. In a very casual interview format, listen further to hear us talk about underpainting and pigments, what it feels like being a sitter, and so much more. Bo is incredibly knowledgeable about the history of art making, so we talk about things like grisaille and monochromatic painting, while also talking about well-known artists like Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun and her guide for artists on painting with sitters, or how Botticelli's Birth of Venus was painted in egg tempera, amongst many other things. To give you an idea while you listen, I want to set the scene a little bit for you. We were standing in Beau's studio in East London with the natural light of a very cold Sunday in November. Beau had his easel set up and a monochrome palette of oil paint to create the underpainting of my portrait. I was standing across from him with a chair in front of me, on the back of which I was resting my hand. And I had a little space heater facing me to keep me warm because of what felt like freezing temperatures. Quite typical for an artist studio in London in the winter. This painting will take a few more sessions to complete. This is one of many. So be sure to follow All About Art and Bo on Instagram to see it when it's finished. Before I dive in, I wanted to let you lovely listeners know that All About Art is on Patreon. So if you want some behind the scenes content, maybe a bit of merch, the chance to get one-on-ones with me and my guests, or you're simply wanting to support this project, I would be absolutely thrilled if you decided to sign up. You can do so through the link in the show notes. I also wanted to say thank you to those who have already signed up. Your support means the world, and it makes the further production, improvement, and growth of the podcast possible. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And now, on to the interview. So what I'm doing right now is just... uh... This is just a, a blank linen canvas that's um, been primed, and I'm just rubbing a bit of sort of earth pigment into it to give, so it's not pure white. Okay. Which is a fairly um, old school approach to, to, to painting. 
figures, uh, it's what the Italians call the imprimatura. Imprimatura. When you see, it's one of those, when you see sort of those older paintings, especially ones that are half finished and they have a sort of earthy glow to them, mm -hmm. you can imagine that. Yeah, absolutely. The, the ground, the, or the, the underlying color was this war, this, it was often these warmer, sort of brownish, red, yellowy pigments, which um, you knew what you were doing, which I'm not sure I do. It kind of comes up, the, the lower layer remains and it adds this warmth to the, to the layer that comes on top. Um, it also means that you have a, you, you have a slightly higher control of the range of colors if, you're, if, if the canvas is pure white, then that's automatically your widest white, and you're yeah. constantly sort of at risk of being overwhelmed by mm -hmm. like looking directly into a spotlight. Because <laughs> if you tone it down a bit, then you decide where the, where the widest white is going to go. So tell me what you're using right now. Yeah, so these are, um, I mean, this is oil paint. Uh, it's, um, the pigments that I'm using here are two fairly pedestrian but very nice colors, um, which are both earths, so mm -hmm. ochres, things that basically, if you go into the, if you go into the mountains outside of Florence and start digging around with a shovel, this is <laughs> the kind of stuff that you come up with. That's the vibe. Um, yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm rubbing it, I'm actually rubbing it in with, uh, with this cloth directly into the canvas, which is something that, um, Actually, Vasari, a very famous art historian, mm -hmm. he also wrote, he wrote another text, which I think was published alongside the lives of the artists, but which much fewer people agree, which is actually a sort of manual on, like, the, on how, how to make paintings. And he actually says that was early you know, 16th century. He says that this is the, his preferred method for toning the, the canvas is to just, I think he says just use your fingers. <laughs> rub it directly in. I feel um, like this is also kind of like painting ASMR for listeners. Like, yeah, well, there's uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a few clips of the palette knife. <laughs> yeah, essentially what we're going to be doing today is a sort of monochrome um, drawing, painting, well, drawing, painting of, uh, of your portrait. In order to in order to exploit in order to get more out of colors, you had to work in layers because it was not like you know impressionism in many ways was a sort of technological revolution paint as much as uh, anything else because suddenly you had these um, amazing colors that you could get ready to use in tubes and you suddenly were you know there was basically no limit in what you could paint whereas it used to be that if you wanted sort of the deepest, the deepest red that you could, you would have to build up three, four, five, six, even, I mean, some, some of the Titian drapery in the National Gallery, you know, the purples and, and reds have like 10 layers. Of wow. Um, but that all started with a sort of monochrome underpainting. That also, you know, these pigments were also very expensive back yeah. in the day, so you, you wanted to make sure you weren't wasting anything, that meant that you had everything sort of already planned out in a monochrome underpainting that you that sort of served as your roadmap and provided the framework to do everything else um, on top of. That at least is the theory in practice. Mm. Uh, I feel like there was a really, really cool exhibition at the National Gallery back in like 
2017, 2018, that was all about that. Was like, that the Grisaille one? Yes, it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so, so this, this concept, it, it's, it's been around for a while. It started actually in Age of Emperor painting, yeah. in which at least um, it's, the skin tones were always underpainted in green. So in the Italian sculpture adoption, if you look at old, sort of the oldest paintings, for instance, the National Gallery from Italy to late medieval, early Renaissance period, there's often this greenish sort of pallor to the faces. Yeah. And that's actually because, you know, the, the upper layers of the, the pinky skin tones have been abraded or have fallen away and you're left with what was originally there, which is this green. Kind of a greenish hue. But um, yeah, I, I, as, as, as sort of time went on by the, by the, I guess, 19th century when the French academic thing was in full, in full force, mm -hmm. that's, they got, they got to the point where they're doing these photorealistic underpaintings in black and white. And I think that was, did that? Was that was very that much the, like the grisaille that they, yeah. yeah. And the whole concept of grisaille and, and it was, it was very much, I mean, I can't remember all that much from it, but I do remember being incredibly, um, impressed and I felt educated when I had walked out of that exhibition. It was, it was a drawings that he transferred. You know, I'm going to be looking at unfinished works of art a lot differently now after, after that yeah. comment. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll finish something today. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think, um, so now that that's all taken care of, we basically just need to, we need to decide on what, what, what the portrait's going to be. So okay. I think for now you're standing, the distance seems about right. Okay. The light is coming from this side. I think now it's a sort of head on, full sort of full, full frontal. On. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a bit um Would you like me to turn my head? Do you want me to turn my head again? Yeah, well, maybe let's before we commit to something, maybe just try a couple of different Sure. See. So you, let's start by you turning slightly towards the light. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, which already, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good angle. It also is interesting how shifting around changes the attitude slightly. You, so some people are very adamant that they have a, a side of their face that they prefer. Like, I, 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 I have a side. Yeah, I have a side. It's not the one you're looking at okay, right well, now. Let's try one. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I think I think both sides are fine. Both Let's sides just are fine. see it. Yeah, this is where in, we're in. This is the exploratory phase. So, why don't you turn, <laughs> so turn around. around. <laughs> but this is again. This is what you get about sessions. So when people go to their poses that make them happy, you just immediately like, yeah. You see them like, like yeah, mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think both sides of the face are equally <laughs> wonderful. But um, yeah, maybe we. I, I do like. There's your eyes kind of lit up a bit. <laughs> you turn this way, so I think. This bodes well. As a general rule with doing portraits, I try to let you, you try to, you, so much of it is seeing what person's character is. Some people are perfectly content to stay stock still for mm -hmm. longer than even I can concentrate for. Some people are uh, of the fidgety persuasion, <laughs> but you, you work with that as well. Um, I find it sometimes good practice to set time limits okay. so um and you know then based on that we can kind of see how you feel and so yeah if we start with like five minutes for instance i can set the time for yeah that, that sounds good yeah and then maybe just because i had some questions from people from social media sure. maybe we, we can, can start with that. one or two of the questions 10 minutes on the clock 
starting now. Right. So the first question is, what music do you have on? It sort of depends on what the task at hand is. And um, I find, I'm, I, I used to be a musician, so I'm actually very, um, I listen to a lot of music as when I'm working, and it's also music, it's, music informs a lot of the paintings I've been doing. They're, they're inspired by specific musical pieces or they reference musical ideas. Um, which, so sometimes I will, you know, almost in, I'll, I'll put a, a certain piece on that I'm, that I'm intentionally trying to react to or, or have some sort of working relationship with, as it were. And for the moment, for this, this series, for instance, has been very influenced by um, sort of er the earliest forms of opera in Italy. So there's a composer Claudio uh, Monteverdi, who's generally acknowledged as the first opera composer in the in the Western tradition, um, and there's a couple of there's a couple of those pieces which I've probably listened to a hundred times. <laughs> the thing with painting is you also if you you know it, it, you have to be careful because sometimes if you if you put on something that's you haven't that you don't know, and especially if it's very good. Um, can be a bit distracting. Oh yeah. <laughs> because you, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I I find it's it's personal. So I find I sometimes paint better if um, if I'm able to zone out a bit. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, because so much of at least this type of painting, I think, depends on a certain looseness and a certain um, inability to sort of let your muscle memory and your intuition take over and one way to do that I find is if you listen to something that you know very well you just sort of slip into a, and you must know what I'm talking about yeah absolutely. The same. so I do I have I have playlists that you know I've probably listened to hundreds of times it's um, definitely how I feel when I write when you write okay interesting yeah. I can't listen to music when I I can't listen to music with words when I write. Oh, okay, but instrumental. Instrumental. Yeah. But if it's something like, sometimes I listen to, it depends on if I need more energy or if I need to concentrate a bit more, but sometimes I listen to more like upbeat instrumental things, right. and then instrumental versions of well-known songs come on, and so all of a sudden I'm, you know, singing the lyrics in my head, and I'm like, no, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> But yeah. then if I put on like some classical music and have that on in the background, it very much helps me, especially if it's a playlist that I've listened to before. Um, it definitely allows me to just zone out and have that as like, yeah. Completely. So I've, um, my go-tos are mostly um, instrumental from like the aforementioned uh, loop music. Loop music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but every now and then, this past week, for some reason that I can't fully articulate, I started listening to a ton of Francois Xavier. Okay. <laughs> Which um, I was doing, I was, I was priming, I was pri I had a lot of canvases to prime, which can be quite, you know, when you're putting the, the sort of underlying layer on, which actually can be quite, um, so you might have to just tilt, tilt your head slightly, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, it can be quite labor intensive, and I think having something a little, um, a little poppy, a little upbeat, mm -hmm. like that, infused with just the right tinge of heartbreak. 
<laughs> oh god. No, okay, yeah, I'll move on. Yeah, I mean, my 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 tastes, I will confess, uh, skew towards uh, music written before seventeen hundred. So <laughs> it's similar to the work that inspires you. For to your certain practice. extent, I, mean, I I think it's in, it's interesting how. Um, with that music, and at least talking about classical music, and compare it to what came later, there's this sort of outward simplicity. Or simplicity, perhaps, is not the is not the right word. There's the the harmonies, the the orchestrations, the scale of the works is not nearly as sort of complex as what came later. But within that, sort sort of like. What I was saying earlier about the pigments, having fewer pigments, but then developing tricks in which to get an enormous range of colors mm -hmm. and effects out of them. I think that the same holds for that music. So it has this intimacy to it, mm -hmm. which I find, um, and it's very compelling. It's also, I think, actually extremely modern in a certain way. Um, there's an almost, dare I say, minimalist uh, vibe to some of this. But uh, to be fair, to return to the original question, if I'm if I'm working with a live model, I actually will often let them choose what they want to listen to, yeah. um, because that's one of the ways to put people in in a good humor, or at least to sort of bring out their their true selves. So yeah. I've painted. My girlfriend likes to listen to history podcasts. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. Um, Hey, if she ever wants to listen to All About Art. There we go, yeah, <laughs> next time. This is uh, actually perfect uh, opportunity. But, yeah. yeah, she can listen to this one while she's sitting for your next one. But I can, yeah, maybe I'll share, I can share my studio uh, playlist perhaps with anyone who wants to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's more interest in, 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 in sort of 15th century music among my friends and acquaintances than I might have originally suspected. <laughs> So um, before we go on to the next question that someone has asked, what are you doing right now? So right now, um, I am using just two colors. There's two colors on the palette. There's a, a white, which is a lead white, which maybe we can get into later, but it's, um, it's a slightly softer white than, than the titanium white, which is the sort of go-to modern, modern color. Mm -hmm. And um, just a garden variety, Brown uh, umber, which is uh, a certain workhorse, bit the workhorse of this palette. Um, and so, with these two, I'm just doing a very quick sketch, not going into any detail, but just trying to get the the sort of volumes, the angles, and the general proportions of your the sort um, of what the composition will be. So, mm -hmm. in this case, it's a sort of bust length portrait mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's, there's different ways of, of, of doing this some people take an extremely geometric approach where um, at this stage they'll, they'll only use straight lines they won't uh, they won't introduce any curves I find that a bit um, I like to have a bit more fun or allow myself a bit more fun than that <laughs> but uh, so the principles of, of starting a portrait are generally the same which is you want to get the, the outermost dimensions of the, of the face established. So I keep um, 
I, keep, I use, I extend the, the paintbrush at arm's length and then close one eye like reciting something and with this thumb here I'm using it as a measure so right now for instance if I put my thumb at the bottom of the face where the chin is and then put the top of the brush where um, at the inside corner of your eye that in pretty much everyone is the exact halfway up point of the face Mm. So once I figured that out, um, I go over here to canvas and I see if the corresponding point where I've drawn made a little mark is also halfway up, and it is. So that's reassuring. <laughs> you know what you're doing. There's, there's, there's something. It's it's very satisfying in the sense that you are you sort of slowly you, you establish these references and then you slowly around them build up. You describe in greater and greater detail everything that's going around. So now that I know where that eye is, I can try and establish the angle between the two eyes, which because you're, this is a sort of classic three quarters angle and your head is uh, slightly tilted, you know, I can, using the same method, hold the brush at that angle and come over here. And I realize right away that the one eye is actually too high up, so I need to move it down a little bit to correspond to the same. Angle. But in general, I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to establish these, these sort of basic, basic, uh, sort of the scaffolding, if you will, mm -hmm. of, of, of the painting. Um, because it, then that means that at the next stage, I won't still be trying to figure out, you know, guessing if, oh, is this in the right place? Is that in the right place? Yeah. It feels weird that I can't like smile and nod and be very like gesture, not gesture, but yeah, I guess like that, that my, what is it in English? Because in, in German we have mimik und gestik. And so we have the facial expressions and then we have our body language. So like the, the difference between the two, like what, what would you call facial expressions? What is that? It's. You mean the, the emotion that you're communicating by your face? Is I that, guess, is yeah, that that's, that's mimic versus gestic is, yeah, the, the gestures and body language. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, obviously we could, like, we still, there's still some decisions to be made here. I mean, we could do something that's more sort of expressive. It's a matter, you know, the... Oh, no, it's just when we're having a conversation, I'm so used to, like, nodding and oh, smiling. Yeah. Oh, I, I see what you're doing. And it's yeah. so very, like... No, well, you're actually, I will say that you're doing an excellent job so far. Oh, focusing. good. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, you get a break. That was what the time was for. Oh, this yeah. is, it is very comfortable. Like, okay. having well, having take, my, like, my facial expression and everything, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, Ooh. It's, it's a very comfortable pose, I have to say. And now, the first thing I usually do at the stage is it always helps to kind of look away, you know, to take your mind off something you can concentrate like this. So when coming back, I just kind of do an initial check to see if it's safe. You know, um, Did you set a timer? eyes, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's on and it's set. So. Should I ask you a second question? Sure. The question, another question is, uh, what is the very first thing you focus on as an artist painting a sitter? 
So yeah, that's also a good question. Um, I guess it, it kind of was answered through how we started this, how which we is start. it does it, the it again it depends on um, it depends on the type. I think it it depends on what ultimately I want a painting to to say for for lack of a better word. Um, and in that case, the first th yeah the first thing you notice, the first thing you look for. Um, on a sort of conceptual level, is what is it about a person um, that is sort of makes them interesting or maybe gives them character? That especially things that maybe um, you feel like a painting might communicate in a way that a photograph can't. Um, and I, from you know, generally speaking, I guess what you would call something's attitude. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think the first <laughs> oh, thing I've do, got plenty of yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You've come to the right, come to the right <laughs> shop. Um, the and yeah, that, and I th then so then sort of the first thing that I think as an artist is oh how can we how can we sort of work together, sitter and and artist to to tap into that, and you know that can come down to the nature of a pose, the angles in his head, what they're wearing. Um, so I've not, I mean, I still, I still work from life. I use models for all the work I do, um, but I have, I wouldn't consider most of what I'm doing now as portraiture in the, in the traditional sense. And so the nature that, those considerations have shifted a bit. And um, I suppose I'm now at the point where it's mostly, it's exclusively friends uh, of mine who are posing, but they're almost always playing characters, as it were. Um, yeah, so in that case, I suppose it's, you know, you, I think one of the, one of the really fun things, um, that you can do as a, as a, as a, as a figurative artist, and especially one who's, who's building stories through the paintings, is you can take, you can take people who, who you know, have relationships with, and, and work with them to sort of develop these. I think characters is, is the is the best um, way to put it. And mm -hmm. I, you know, it, it's this sort of fascinating for me mixture between just practicality and the fact that you know if you want to depict a, a human doing something, um, you need a model. I, I suppose there are certain artists who don't. Uh, from a practical point of view, I mean, you st I start with just. Um, the person, kind of just I guess. placing the image within the within the the confines of the canvas. I as a when I I, mean, I still do it, and even as a kid, I remember when I would draw, I would always run out of room on, on the paper. Mm -hmm. You know, because you start, <laughs> I would start I would start drawing something and immediately go in for you know the the coolest detail. Yeah. And then before I knew it, that detail would take up the entire page, and there was no room for anything else. You know. You, you start painting a ship and you want to do the very ornate uh, part on the back, you know, with all the carvings and the like, there's no room for the, the rest of the ship. The rest of it. So I've, I've begrudgingly accepted as a, as a painter that one of the first things is to make sure, just always where I have some drawings over there if you look, I've had to glue other pieces of paper to them <laughs> because I've run out of room. But um, for this, when you're, especially when you're working on a canvas, it's hard to it's hard to add more canvas on not impossible to there are paintings that if you look at older paintings where you would sew canvases together to 
Mm. Um, but yeah, and so then from there, it's just uh, yeah, it's a matter of once you have that defined, then you start working inwards. You know, it's a bit. I've, I've heard people use actually the metaphor of being a sculptor, where you're um, chipping away at a at a block of stone of some sort. Once you have the sort of outward part defined, it's a matter of finding the inner the inner angles and edges. Um, but Those are generally, but that's sort of generally the first, the first, um, the first consideration. Also, the, the gesture is quite important. And the gesture can be as simple as, you know, just the angle at which someone is is cocking their head, or, you know, the, the if someone is, if someone's shoulders are, you know, the, at, a, yeah. at an angle. That's what gives a lot of dynamism and, and character and attitude to 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 the depiction of the person, um, and that's. If those are the kinds of things where if you, if you notice them right off the bat and, and start off with an intention to really to build a picture around that, I find those are often um, the more successful, successful paintings. Yeah. We have another question that I think kind of ties into what we're talking about, and it's how did you decide what medium to use? And I know that like that's quite an interesting one to be asking you because you've really thought a lot about this. You know a lot about like the history of different mediums and and things like that. So how did you decide to do what you do with what you do? Yeah, it's <laughs> a very good question. It's a very good question. Um, I didn't start off as a as a as a painter at all. I started off. Um, I originally studied literature and worked in law for a bit and. music as well, but when I did start studying art and doing art um, properly, I was actually, uh, I was doing illustration. Mm. Um, so my mediums at the time were very much those of sort of traditional illustration, pen, pen and ink, watercolor, um, mm -hmm. things that were very conducive to, to quick drawing style. Um, and so when I, as I started to develop increasingly this interest in in, in painting and um, sort of representational painting, and my first uh, attempts at it were um, using using sort of those mediums. I remember trying trying to sort of do portraits in watercolor, which I I mean obviously it's a, it's something that can be done extremely well. If you ever look at you know, John Singer Sargent yeah. watercolors, they're amazing. But I I, I basically didn't know how to use those tools, those 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 mediums to get the effects that I really wanted. And um, I remember at a certain point I started. Uh, should we keep going for a little bit? Sure. Uh, at a certain point I started using acrylic paint, um, but then I found that that uh, acrylic paint for anyone who's who who has never used it is. Um, it's a, it's it's great because it's very uh, it's very easy to use. It's water soluble. You can wash it or dilute it with water, but it dries extremely quickly. So you don't, in terms of the workability, you don't have a whole lot of um, wiggle room in terms of modifying an image as you as you make it. And you also um, it's harder to build up layers to sort of achieve these effects of 
depth and, and luminosity that uh, you can in, in oil paintings. So I, I remember doing sort of the, for I guess what in retrospect was probably the first portrait I ever did, which was an absolutely god-awful self-portrait <laughs> um, in acrylic, and I showed it to a, to a, a painting professor at the time, and he said, I, I remember he said, he said, to do what you obviously want to do, you need to learn how to use oil paint. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the basic, the, the main reason for that is because oil paint allows you, um, I mean, for, it allows you just, to, uh, uh, for me, it it's depends on the kind of style you want. The kind of style I, that I was aiming for, it allows um, just to create, there's more flexibility in how you use it. And um, I'm not the world's best Draftsman, and I often struggle actually with with the sort of drawing element and with oil paint. You can you can move it around if it's on the canvas. You can you can move. You can change where things are. You can smear things. You can smudge things. You can um, and all of that was uh, was quite well suited to sort of my temperament, I think, and my and my uh, inclinations as as a painter. Um, as I've increasingly sort of looked into the history of painting it's this is also I mean historically Western art went through exactly this this process which is that the first sort of you know starting in the medieval era and then into the Renaissance the first paintings were done using something called egg tempera which yeah. is uh, just pigment mixed with egg yolk um, which is very beautiful and can be used to create some extremely fine very detailed, very sophisticated effects, but it dries extremely quickly. When egg temper is done, is done well, it's, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful medium. Um, I mean, but in, in, in the last one, Botticelli's Birth of Venus is painted in egg tempera. Is it? Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah, I didn't a, know that. It's a very rare. Uh, That's well, huge. Not so rare. Like an example of egg tempera on, on canvas, which is also quite interesting. Usually egg tempera is done on on wood, oh, on panel. Yeah. I believe, I believe that the birth of Venus is egg tempera and primavera might be in oil. It might be a mix. I mean, I was about to say I was painted in an era where oil paint was developed in Northern Europe. Painters like Van Eyck mm -hmm. were the first to explore its full potential to, to sort of, and in the way we talked about earlier, create this, you know, it was essentially a much, a much, uh, a much more, there was just a lot more you could do with it, um, or there was more you could do with it in a sort of more efficient way. Of course, you know, at the at the time, I mean, I think people sometimes forget how much of a sort of business art was, and the fact that you know artists did not work most of the time; they did not work by themselves. Sort of, you know, they they were part of these larger, almost factory-like workshops where they were, you know, having to meet demand of clients and oil paint meant that you could, um, you could sort of get these effects you wanted quicker because you also, oil has this natural luminosity to it, mm -hmm. which, um, but yeah, then I mean, after, after those, uh, after paint on oil sort of became prevalent in Northern Europe, it reached, it started to work its way into Southern Europe and so then around the time of Botticelli, the Italians started adopting it. But um, for a while, you can mix the two techniques together. So you have paintings that are both egg tempera and oil. Um, this is becoming a very 
very technical. All over the place, history lesson. No, that's okay. But this is what this this is this what this is. is. This is not. We're not having a, a structured interview. We're just exactly. chatting about different things. That's what it's about. Um, maybe I can ask another question. Sure. Let me know you're 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 out of break at some point. So maybe should I say another maybe, five minutes and then maybe? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, there were. We... Yes. Here we go. Which part of the process do, does the artist enjoy most? Planning, sketching, first wash, final details, mixing color, etc. Ooh, a very good question. And dare I say, maybe from another artist? Actually, no. no. Well, no, not a full time professional. Okay. However, so... she does paint. Yeah, no, that's, um, I mean, yeah. Uh, it is true. I, let's not forget that painting is a very. Um, there's something quite hedonistic. I mean, just you know, anyone who's watched those ASMR, you know, can't fall asleep, watch this two hours of someone mixing paint. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know there's just, there's something just very pleasing about so much of this of this process. Um, I I personally really like the sketching phase. Um, I think it actually. I, says I'll, the guy who didn't do the sketch. Says the guy who didn't do the sketch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe <laughs> retroactively, if you want. <laughs> I think there's a bit, a bit of that that goes on. Um, it, again, it, it, it depends on the type of painting. For, for, for these larger compositions that involve multiple people, where you know everything, it's all based in reality, but nothing that you see, you know, any of these figures, it's very rarely that I studied the person exactly as they appear all in one place. M most of the time, it's, you know, a piece of clothing from someplace mixed with a head or a face from somewhere else and then superimposed on a landscape. So you're always sort of compiling different images. Mm -hmm. And the way I personally do that is through just doing a lot of drawing. You know, you're trying to just quickly see what does or doesn't work. And um, there's, you know, it allows you a kind of looseness, which is really, which is really fun. Um, and it's just, uh, for me, it's one of the sort of most sort of purely creative parts of the whole process because you are trying to, you're trying to conjure something out of where there wasn't anything before, uh, if that makes sense. And I just find that, you know, very, very, I just enjoy it. It sounds like it's the most like imaginative part of the process. Yeah, it is. And I mean, for this type of painting, and I, you know, I have recently been doing, I've been going back to a to sort of style painting that I originally mostly did, which was much looser, much less preparatory work involved. Um, but at a certain point, if you if you if you if, if you've set out to 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 work in a in a certain figurative style, it's very difficult to do without a certain amount of preparation. Yeah. And the more preparation you do, in theory, the sort of more locked in you are then when by the time you actually start painting and, and, and then start building up layers of painting, you know, you ask about washes. Often by the time you're doing by the time you're doing that, you already you have less flexibility in terms of what the image is gonna be. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there are I mean doing uh, I guess yeah, washes. I one of the things that maybe we'll we can talk about next time because it will be at that point in the process. One of the features of this kind of kind of type of painting is called glazing, which is where you've already established an underlying image with certain colors, and.
and that in order to make those colors more vibrant or to add a color that's going to have more power, you put on a very thin, transparent, semi-transparent or transparent layer of paint. And that is, if, if, you've, if you've set everything up right, doing that is extremely rewarding because things just come alive. Really? Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, th those are two of my very favorite uh, moments. Also, I have to say, what we're doing now, in sort of the same way, you know, just doing this underdrawing in, 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 in monochrome, it's a bit like drawing. It's very exciting because you're suddenly, you know, you see the thing, you see the, the painting taking shape, but there's still a certain, an element of uncertainty that you can, you can still change things. And, you know, it's at this stage where just small gestures can completely you know, a line quickly added here and something wiped away here can completely change the image you're looking You'd at. You'd better still make me look good. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you already said I have nice eyelids, so that's yeah, all I really uh, need to know. We are losing our light. I'm so sorry. Yeah, because yeah, you're I mean, painting I, with the daylight. Mixing, um, the, the palette question is also an interesting one. I mean, I... I I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to to, to pigments and paint. I mean, I'm basically I'm not really using any pigments that all, all the paints I use are basically what would have been on the palette of a of a painter around 1500, mm -hmm. um, which I find it's it's also it's an interesting limitation. Again, I think you know in a, in a discipline where there's basically no limit to what you can come up with or what you can do. I find at a certain point you actually sort of need some kind of constraint. And for me, the, the palette is, is, I found a quite interesting and useful one. So is that a way of like setting rules for yourself in a way? Exactly. And it's also a way of um, establishing a sort of formal uh, yeah, formal constraint or, or, or a framework by which to work. Um, it also means, for instance, if you, if you know you have to paint, say, a, a, a red dress or a, I don't know, a green bit of cloth, you have already, before you even start doing it, you sort of know the steps that, that, that you need to take. And mm -hmm. Painting, I, 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 I often think painting is this great back and forth between um, doing things where you there's basically n infinite ways to accomplish it um, and things where you just need to know exactly where you need a formula a recipe that you can go to and there's no question about how it's done mm -hmm. um, and yeah with uh, with with mixing with mixing paint that's um, Kind of falls it falls it a bit into the into the latter category. Um, I think I try to adhere to a rule in theory and practice. It's of course a different story, but um, that any mix of paint I do doesn't have much more than three separate colors in it. Oh, um, which I believe is one of those sort of uh, academic you know principles of, of painting, as it was taught in the. Beaux Arts in the in the eighteen hundreds. You know, the theory being, if you start adding more colors than that, um, well, first of all, you, you, you increasingly run the risk of things becoming muddy, 
unless, I guess, I suppose muddiness can be a virtue in a certain kind of painting, but in, in another, it's sort of to be avoided at all costs. Um, it also, uh, it forces you to be precise because um, if you're limiting yourself to that number of colors, you need to sort of know exactly what you're doing before you do it, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a very early, this very early uh, author of a treatise on painting named Alberti, which I don't know if you've ever had to read in. I have. So, have yeah, the, the Alberti treatise, like these old treatises, it's, it's equal parts sort of practical information and equal mm -hmm. parts sort of philosophy of, you know. We had a course called The Body and Politics of Color at UCL, and in that we we read a little bit of Alberti. Ah, okay. What did you, do you remember much oh of it? God. I bet if you asked me specifics, I'd remember some of it. But I remember, I remember something distinct about a certain pigment. Was it red? Or what was it that was spoken about? I don't know. You're going to, I think you may have to remind me. Alberti, I'm too, I, I will, it? full disclosure, I'm not, I'm not a sort of a scholarly expert on Alberti and I've, I've sort of read. Was it the pigment? Now I might be mixing it up. Bits, I've, I've read sort of bits and pieces of his yeah. stuff. He was, I think he was also, he was also, he's very well known as a, an early, um, he had a lot of theories on perspective that, you know, were very mathematical, yes. about geometry. Yes, that's what it was. The book is, has several of these sort of, you know, linear perspective diagrams. Um, oh, maybe then I'm mixing it up with another thing that was all about like certain colors. colors. Well, there's, there's, chin, there's, a, there's a guy with the, the fabulous name of Chinino Chinini. That's what it that's, was. That's, yeah, you know the, the, what's the, the Sorry, crap, that's, the crap that's, no, that's the one where he goes, he sort of has this, yeah, he has this complete index of all, of all the pigments. Yes. And actually, earlier, yeah. earlier when I was talking about taking your shovel up to, uh, to the, Foothills above Florence and digging for ogre. That actually is a route. He does yes, say that it must have been ogre. Want, that I'm he says if you want this specific color, you have to go. He gives you directions. He says you yes. go to this little town. I need to stop being. I need to stop being so enthusiastic because I'm breaking my pose. No, no, no. Yes, like, that's exactly who yeah. I was thinking of. Not Alberti. But didn't Alberti do? Wasn't it? But now that you're saying perspective wasn't, didn't he somehow contribute to being like a precursor to? like the camera obscura yeah i think I, yeah there's a there's very interesting um i don't know is he, does he maybe mention using one i i, I know that maybe David oh, maybe, Hockney yeah. has been a, a pretty um vocal uh proponent of this theory that uh vermeer specifically did much of his work using the camera obscura Maybe. Um, I feel like for an art historian, I'm not really that, like, on it with um, knowing. Oh, this is pretty niche <laughs> like, stuff. Though, but I did know it? Chinini. Chinino Chinini, yeah. But <laughs> we can have actually, these, these works that are on panel have all been um, prepared using a traditional gesso that is basically the recipe is unaltered from Chinini, uh, mm. more or less. Should I take a little break? Yeah. Wow. Um, but Alberti says, why did we get onto this topic? <laughs> um, because we were talking about your, your favorite part of the process. Your favorite part of the process. Oh yeah, he says, he says that you shouldn't do, when it comes to painting, you shouldn't do anything where you don't know exactly what you're going to do before you do it. Yeah. Which, um, yes, it's quite 
prescriptive in a way, but at the same time, I think he gets at something important, which is that it's amazing how the steps to, 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 to putting paint on canvas change when you sort of start thinking of things in those terms. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like, because we had another question from the same person asking, is there a ritual surrounding your painting time? And I guess like part of the answer that you've already sort of given is that you set rules for yourself and that you have these, these formal uh, guidelines by which you then create. Yeah. Is I there anything I mean, else? The, the, I, I like the term ritual because um, there is a very ritualistic yeah. component to, to, to making art, I think. Um, the classic, the classic approach is you create a, a range then on your palette of you know going from dark to light, light to dark. There's debates over which way you go, painting from dark to light, light to dark. Um, and then in theory you stick to that. So that means you have you know a dedicated paint paintbrush for each. Say you you've broken up the greens into five different shades, so light to dark. You have a separate brush for each one. And the idea is that when you move to one to the other, you change the brush. Um, do you do that? <laughs> As you can imagine, this is this is. I mean, you're standing here with one, two, one, three, two, yeah, and I'm four, only, five. Wait, how many is it? Six. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine brushes, and uh, we will remind the listener that there are only two colors on the palette right now: <laughs> brown, <laughs> brown and white. Um, okay, part of that is that the, the brushes are all slightly different; that they're different sizes. They, you know, this one is a big stiff bristle brush, which is kind of you know used to rub things into the. I, I hear that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that brush is yep. quite good for working the paint with the texture, which can be good. You know, it can be good for creating sort of rougher textures. It's also quite useful for if there's some wet paint down, you want to go back through it and expose some of the underlying color. Yeah. Um, so for hair, that's quite good. You actually ah. or you usually use older brushes, which where you don't mind if they get a bit beat up, because then you work your way, you scratch your way, as it were, back through, um, which can be quite quite useful. And then some of this, and this is a little, this guy's a little tiny sable brush, so that's very I've tiny. Been using to do sort of little, uh, you know, eyelids and that sort of. <laughs> my but, my, what what was I what the? Oh yeah, yeah, your Correggio Parmigianino. <laughs> Parmigianino <laughs> eyelids. Uh, I'm gonna, you know what? That's that's gonna be something that I'm always gonna remember. Parmigianino. Someone said I have Parmigianino <laughs> eyelids. <laughs> What? I mean, look, tell, tell me I'm wrong. There's the picture of her right there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll take that. I'll definitely take that. That's great. Shall we do one more? Let's one more do one more. Yep. And then, and then I have one final question okay. from like from the the people who submitted questions, which um, I'm really grateful for because that has made for actually a really really fun discussion of like you know. Yeah, the brilliant way of. Uh, getting into some of these topics, and I feel like we've covered quite a bit. I mean, this is also, it's taken on quite a historical element, I realize. It has, um, and I really it, do love that, because I yeah, think, like, maybe, artists... Maybe next time we can, we can only talk about people, only talk about 20th century art. <laughs> yeah, we can do it. Then, then it, is, probably... it is quite interesting to see how these principles, at least, you know, in, in the Western tradition, having been defined in the Renaissance, are then sort of uh, either preserved or broken 
um, or modified and absolutely and so much of that and at least it, what I'll be able to contribute will be a little bit more educated <laughs> I mean because although I did study art history my specialization is definitely in 20th and 21st century so what was your what was your ex expertise as an art historian so as an undergrad I actually uh, which hasn't aged well, in my opinion, but my dissertation was on artificial intelligence huh. and authenticity and authorship. So I looked at you know, the historical ideas of technological reproduction and authorship and looked at various contemporary artists who use AI. Now, this was before the NFT boom of 2021, because I finished my degree in 2020, and then I continued my studies in arts administration and cultural policy, so I didn't take a more you know art historical academic route. But what then I continued to research and do reading in was uh, more feminist theory in 20th and 21st century art. Right. Um, so that's definitely something that I know a bit more about. Um, and of course, through my job, contemporary and 20th late 20th century works um, or is something that I have ended up knowing a lot about just through my everyday job. Right. Well, I'm, yeah, no, that's, um, to me, it's one of the questions I often have for art historians or um, people who are, in, who are sort of involved with your side of the art world, um, is how, how does an understanding of sort of what we've been talking about so far, you know, the, the materials, the process, mm -hmm. how does that, illuminate your understanding of, of sort of the, a broad, the broader, perhaps, uh, cultural or theoretical or, um, you know, aspects to, to, to thinking about someone's practice. I think that um, these, because I, I first moved to London thinking I was going to specialize in old master paintings. Right. And so a lot of my courses that I had in the first two years of my degree we're very much focused on Renaissance and Baroque painting. Okay. And so this has always been a real passion of mine, but it was when I started working at Sotheby's and then did internships at contemporary art galleries that that's the direction my career took. Right. But I think one of the reasons why I love your practice so much is because it's this beautiful combination of, you know, these theories and topics and themes that I was so passionate about personally, but that I think have an incredibly rich history and have really colored the way that we go about the the arts now mm. and really define the sector today from i mean as you could say with anything throughout history like of course the result of our contemporary society comes from past historical events like we, we develop out of these things our society changes and art is part of that and so i think that it's actually incredibly um rewarding to have like a refresher basically of speaking about these things that like when we were talking about you know color or talking about egg tempera or talking about these things like also learning from someone who actively uses it and who has gone so deep into um reflecting on the processes and making them his own i i think it's just it's so interesting because it just broadens my perspective as well well, thank you. That's one of the nicest things I think I could possibly hear as someone doing. Okay, doing I have to stand still. I can't laugh. Yeah, now, now. <laughs> um, Compliments are over. 
But actually, because like just because you you said that, and like I, there is one last question that I want to ask, and it does have to do with like. Well, it's adjacent to what I just said, i.e., me giving you feedback on like the conversation sure. we just had. But what makes a good sitter for you? Yeah, that's um, again. Uh, not, I'm not going to apologize for constantly invoking her name because she is one of the greatest portrait painters of all time. Vigée Lebrun. Vigée Lebrun <laughs> I knew you were going to say. Yes, you knew. You knew where I was going. <laughs> in that same. Uh, in that same. Um, in that same little text, which maybe we should, maybe we should post excerpts from. It is, it, is, it is a really great read. She specifically says, when it comes to the sort of comments and feedback, she says, um, she says people when they cut pose will often want to bring their friends with them. Mm -hmm. She says, you really must not allow this because it's really? gonna, she says, before you know it, you're gonna have, everyone is gonna be offering their opinion. And she says, most people have no idea what makes a good portrait. Um, so it's just, it's, there's no good can come of it. She says, unless, she says, every now and then you will have someone who's, who, who's friends with some real, you know, some connoisseurs. She says, yeah, as, as long as they sort of are respectful, you can allow them. But mm -hmm. um, I find what makes a good sitter, uh, it's a really good question. Um, and uh, there's some, there's some, one where you know I think the answers are as varied as there are interesting people to paint out there which is in theory just about anyone if <laughs> <laughs> um, approached uh, I, I mean I, I find because uh, as I said earlier I mean, I'm not I'm not necessarily a strict portraitist but um, when I am painting people I just you know and, and I love working with people who have uh, some curiosity about the process, you know, people with whom I can have exactly this type of discussion, um, because I end up learning so much uh, as well, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I think anyone who's, uh, ultimately, you know, for, for me, so much of, of painting is about uh, forms of engagement. How do you how do you, as a painter, engage with your own your own concept for, for what a painting is going to be? How do you, in, you know, ideally paint in such a way that other people, even those who don't know anything about you or perhaps don't know very much about painting in general, can still find a, some kind of point of communion, as it were? And in some ways, I think that, for me, that all starts with exactly what we're doing here. You know, what is the nature of the relationship that the engagement, the exchange between the painter and the subject. And um, I also do think it's one of those, it's one of those phenomena where in, in historically it can be, it's often a topic, a bit of a fraught topic when you start looking at, you know, old master's paintings and discussing ideas of, of, of subjectivity and, and the male gaze. You know, you see these paintings by painters like Titian, you know, Giorgione. And you wonder, you know, often you hear that people ask, well, what, you know, do these models, especially, you know, the, the young women who are often depicted in, you know, sexualized positions, you, you wonder, were they, did they have any say in what was going on? What was the relationship between the subject and, and the person depicting it? And mm -hmm. I think, I mean, it's interesting from an art historical point of view that I think there's a point at which you can't fully answer that question because 
you know, if you, mo most of these models, unless they were, you know, painting a portrait of someone who was very influential and well-known, that's one thing, but the, the sort of anonymous um, models who were in, in, in many ways the backbone of, of, that, of the painter's studio in the early modern period, you know, it's very, very little is known about them. Uh, there's, you know, I think it's, it's largely understood that in a lot of instances they were actually sex workers because they were in some ways the only women for whom it was culturally, you know, socially acceptable to be in that context. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very long-winded <laughs> no, answer it's great. To, your, to your question, but I think, I think one of, the, one of the things that is sort of our responsibility painting in this era, and especially one where, you know, we're much more aware and, and, and engage with these kinds of questions is, yeah, how, how can you, how can you, what is your relationship exactly that, in exactly that way, you know, we're now, it's again, one of the reasons I think behind my, in this series, only using as models people I know personally, is one answer to that. Um, you know, how, what, what is, even if someone is not being depicted, even if you're not depicting someone in, a, in the mode of a portrait, how does the fact that you're using their likeness to stand in for something that you devise, how does that work when you actually know them and you're, and, and you're not just you know them, but you are able to have a conversation with them as you make the thing? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, uh, I, I think a lot, a lot of painters, perhaps, if you ask them what makes a good sitter, they'll say someone who, who can stand still for a long time and doesn't <laughs> talk too much. <laughs> Which, from a, from a purely practical point of view, yes, is not is not wrong. Um, I, I'm perhaps a less efficient painter because I'm a chatty one. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, you know, you actually it's inter it's an interesting question because it really does it it it, it, it broaches uh, for me as a, a conceptual point of what I do, which is how how do you engage? How do you yeah? How how, how do you engage? Your, your sitter, or stander in this case, <laughs> with what you're doing. I mean, I have to say it was absolutely perfect for my project as well, because, you know, having this very, very niche idea of doing a podcast episode while I'm sitting for a painting, well, standing for a painting, as you just said, I think is incredibly rewarding to have someone who, because you just said you're, you're a chatty painter, <laughs> yes. and it's absolutely perfect for a podcast episode, because... I think it's so nice to hear your thought process and hear you think through the questions and think through your own steps that you're taking. I'm going to try to talk less emotively so that I no, can no, stand no, we're, still. I think we're, at the, we're, we're at a sort of, we're, and we're at the very end of our session now, so I think we can be a bit, I'm actually, I'm just doing the little, the little faux fur. The faux fur? Oh my god! I, do you think I should look at it at the end of this session, or should I should I not look uh, at it at all? Let's see. Let's see. I mean, we're down. This is like the final the final minutes of the match. Anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, I think at this point, uh, yeah, maybe you should look at it because I actually think. Um, I mean, I what I like actually is. Uh, I sometimes like to, at the end of a, of a session like this, show what I've done to, to the sitter because I find pe people's input, I mean, at the end of the day, no one knows, you know, you, no one knows your own face as well as you do in terms of you when know, you're looking at it every day. In the
Yeah, that seems that seems about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can sit down now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, Bo, I think I'm going to conclude the episode. Yeah. Well, to be continued, because we have... To be um, continued. We're going to do some more sessions. We'll do some more sessions. Yeah, maybe actually we can pick up next time as if you just look at it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You've been an e- excellent... Many, many thanks to your most excellent model. And, Thank uh, you for looking. letting me have this experience. Of it's course, something it I've never done before, and it's something I've always wanted to do. So this is this has been really cool. Yeah, well, um, stay, stay tuned for <laughs> part two when the color comes out. <laughs> and that is it for today on All About Art. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a rating or a review as it helps more people discover the show. Also, feel free to share with your friends, or if you share on social media, tag me and get in touch. Thank you so much for listening.